Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Good to see you today. I'm going to talk real fast so our candles make it. How about that? That's beautiful. Thank you for setting this up, John and Rosemary. Appreciate that very much. Just a little quick note on Advent. Most of you may know what Advent is all about. Some of you hear the word. You're not sure what that is. Advent simply just means the preparation of something coming or someone coming. So that's a generic usage of the word. But the early church uh, started in their belief that not only were they excited about Christ coming in his first arrival, but more so about his second coming. And so Advent actually years and years ago, talking hundreds of years ago, was uh, celebrated as his coming the second time, which is what we're looking for, right? But we use it in seasons like this to also represent uh, what once happened, and that was his first coming. And so we're in great anticipation of Christmas morning, remembering the glory of the Lord and what he's done for us. But So just think of it as that. You may be unfamiliar with it. I just thought I'd give a little bit of a definition there so you understand what it's all about. This is the reason there are two lit is because today is the second Sunday in what's called the Advent season. That starts four weeks prior as the fourth week being the Christmas Sunday before Christmas or on Sunday. Uh, this middle one we will light just for fun because it's really pretty uh, on our Christmas Eve service, okay? So that's just kind of like a little freebie there. And we'll light the pink one on our last Sunday just before, okay? So anyway, that's what that's all about. And now welcome those of you that are watching online. We're glad to have you with us today as well. Several announcements. I've been mentioning this about Brother Danny, Danny Vaya, uh, becoming an elder with us. That time is just about up. And so uh, next Sunday, if Brother Danny and Miss Peggy are, are okay with this, I'd like to have a little affirmation of that, uh, unless there's some reason that comes in this week that gives us concern. Uh, but certainly there has been nothing, and we've been greatly blessed by all of what we've seen and heard so far. So next week will be special for us as we do that as a as a part of our service, just in this service. Okay? We won't be doing that in the 9 a.m. service, but just in this service. Um, I would ask you, and you should have seen this in Pastor Hamp's email, if uh, you're not part of Sunday school, uh, would you consider coming to the 9 a.m. service? If you are part of Sunday school, of course, that wouldn't work. But if you're not a part of Sunday school, would you consider coming to the 9 a.m.? We just want to do what we can to make sure uh, as many are spread out as possible. Uh, we really do care about what's going on, even though it may not appear like that sometimes, but we really do care and just want to make sure that we're being sensitive to everybody. So if you can do that, uh, if you'll honor us by just coming to the 9 a.m. service, that would be helpful. Christmas Eve is still going on as far as I know. They haven't canceled Christmas Eve this year, so we're going to do our Christmas Eve celebration at 5 p.m. And uh, just for the same reason, if you can let us know if you're planning on coming to that service, there is a sign-up sheet in the back. If you will please put your name and how many people you think are coming, you'll see that it's self-explanatory. Pastor Ann put it out there. You don't need to email or call or anything like that. Just sign up on the back sheet, and that way we'll have a good idea of who's planning on being here. Thea was just telling me that uh, good news. Uh, we've been announcing about Pacham and the meals that are necessary. Friday night, the 22nd, is the only time that's needed for meals now, and that's great. Praise the Lord for that. So if you have interest in helping with that ministry, you can just see Thea afterwards, and uh, we'll take care of that. Finally, uh, on December 27th, okay, that's the last Sunday of the Advent season, uh, Pastor Ernesto, our Spanish ministry, will be up here preaching for us. That's going to be he uh, and Anna's last Sunday with us. They're moving to Tennessee 
And as you know, Pastor Scott has been doing a lot of work with the Spanish ministry, but we're going to let Pastor Ernesto come and preach for us on that Sunday. Uh, but after service, we're going to be gathering downstairs for a meal and uh, for a time of celebration uh, for their ministry. But also we're calling this the celebration of 2020. Okay, So you can insert there whether you want that to be positive or negative, however you feel about 2020. Uh, I'm going to choose to look at it as what great things God has done. Uh, because I was the men, and by the way, we as men had a great time. Sorry, men, if you couldn't be with us on Friday night. Just a real special time. And we were just rejoicing over what God has done this year just in church life. More and more people are asking about God and, and what's going on and the answers to what's happening in this world. And uh, God is doing much. And we were saying in our men's meeting the other night that this could be very well the greatest days of the church ever. Ever. And uh, we could be living in some of the most exciting times of the life of the church. And so we want to celebrate the ending of 2020 and the entrance of what 21 is going to look like, but also for Brother Ernesto. Now, with that also being said, if you would consider uh, bringing some kind of offering or just give some kind of love offering uh, for them, we want to send them off with, with blessings as much as we possibly can, okay? So I know it'll be a great time. All right, now, those are the announcements. So let's pray. And then uh, we'll get into the subject for this morning. Father, we thank you for the joy of gathering. Never want to neglect that. And Lord, we thank you that you are in full control of all things that happens. And so Lord, uh, we just submit this time to you. I personally submit this time to you as often there are times where it's a little challenging to speak on particular subjects just to make it clear and to make it relevant. And Lord, I'm just so thankful that I don't have the ability to do that, but can trust you to make that happen in our hearts. Thank you for your word that gives us clarity. Thank you for what you teach us. And we thank you that you are a God who wants us to know you. We're so excited about seasons of the year like this and like Easter celebration or the resurrection celebration, particularly in the life of the church. And so uh, we're just kind of on that drum beat, that, uh, that slow drum roll that's beginning to start as we're in, in preparation of our minds, remembering the birth of our Savior. So speak to our hearts, we pray this morning, Lord. Make it clear to us in the way that you would. Uh, touch each heart in the place that they are in this morning and let them know that you love them. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, <clears throat> I've said this before, but I'll say it again. One of the things that I always try to do uh, for your benefit, not to waste your time, is to give you some kind of application of, of life from God's Word. And so that is certainly the case this morning. I want to always do that. I want to give you something functional, something that you can hold on to. That's really my goal. I think that's one of the reasons why you come. Um, the reality is, though, people don't really know God very well. Um, in fact, most people want to know God for what He can do for them. You know, that's kind of our sinful nature. Uh, it's not wrong all the time. Certainly God does that in Scripture. He gives to us instruction and teaching and how to live this life more effectively. But uh, sometimes that's what we want from God. We just want to kind of rub the bottle like a, a genie in the bottle kind of thing and just you know, hope that God's going to bring us something of good fortune. And, uh, and that has its own place, but that's not really what God is looking to us for. What God looks to us for is for us to give him glory. Uh, this life, let's say it this way, this life is not about us. Right? We should reiterate that to ourselves often. We were created to be reflectors of God's glory, to display the glory of God to the world. 
And you hear that throughout Scripture. And so this morning, I want to do a special mini-series for the month of December uh, up until the 27th. Of course, Ernesto will be preaching then. But I just want to step away from Matthew for a few minutes. You'll say, aha. No, you're not, because we're going to come right back to Matthew 1 this morning. And look at that. We're going to look at Luke's Gospel in Genesis chapter 1 and flip around quite a bit. So uh, I'd want to do that because... I think at a Christmas time like this, it's always challenging year after year after year after year to preach something a little different from the text. And so I want to try to do that this morning uh, and for the next couple of weeks as we look into the gift that God has given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the ways that he went about doing this and what it really means. And so I'll break those down for you here in just a minute and hopefully you'll get something of application out of it. If nothing else, I pray that your hearts will be richer just because of who God is. And that's good news in itself, isn't it? I mean, even if we walk away with no jewels in our pockets, so to speak, we walk away with the greatest of jewels, which is the Lord Christ himself and the knowledge of who he is. And so, uh, and not to mention the fact that we're free from our sins, and that ought to be uh, enough to celebrate itself. So here's what we're going to do. I'm entitling this, Jesus, a Gift from God. Uh, This first one is going to be a gift from God by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I just want to focus as best we can on the Holy Spirit's role in life. First, we're going to talk about who he is and then how he has worked in the birth of Christ. And then next week, we're going to talk about Jesus as a gift from God as our salvation. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus as a gift that needs to be worshipped. So that's kind of the plan over the next couple weeks just so you have a knowledge of knowing that. Now, I I really purposefully don't let you know what I'm going to do so that you can't say, okay, well, I think I'll skip that message. I'll just stay home because that doesn't sound too good. Uh, So I try to keep you in the dark as much as possible and then just hit you with a bolt of lightning uh, as clearly as I can. But um, usually it's a fizzle instead of a bolt. But that's that's okay. We'll let God do the work in all of that. All right. Well, let's stand and look at Matthew chapter 1 after I told you we're not going to be in Matthew. Somebody's saying, see, I told you preachers just lie all the time. (laughs) Matthew chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. Now, the birth of Christ, Jesus Christ, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. All right. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. If you were paying attention, you heard reference to exactly what I'm talking about this morning, and that is the Holy Spirit. Very clearly does God write for us this reference two times in those couple verses, uh, the Holy Spirit, or about the Holy Spirit and his role in bringing our Savior into the world. And so we want to explore the Holy Spirit and who he is. Now, that was Matthew's account. Now, don't stand up, but I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1. And I want you to read along with me as I read this out loud, beginning in verse 26. Hold your place in Matthew. Uh, We're going to go to Luke, and then we're going to spend some time in Genesis 1, as I said uh, just a moment ago. But let's get Luke's picture of this account as he gives us a little bit more detail. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth 
to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Can you imagine Mary's heart right there at that moment? Boy, what an amazing thing that would have been. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right. Well, very descriptive words from Luke and just very beautifully written by the Spirit of God there to help us to understand. So what I really want you to focus on this morning, and if you haven't already gathered this, is that the clarity that both Matthew and Luke give to us in their accounts concerning the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth of Jesus. Okay, so we want to look at that specifically. Now, just to begin our thoughts about the Holy Spirit, let's just put it in some things that we will understand more clearly. And that is, there are a lot of people, and I would say most, I don't know what the statistics are, but many people who profess to be believers have no real idea or clue about who the Holy Spirit is. And most people have different ideas and opinions about him. In fact, some people see him as what they would say an emanation from God. Now, that's not a word we commonly use, but it just simply means some type of product from God or something that's a function of God or something that would be an attribute, if you will, of God. And some people will say that. He's kind of this thing that is out there. Others will say the Holy Spirit is a force of God, a spiritual force, kind of like the force is with you, right, from Star Wars. People will say, oh, yeah, if you're a believer, you've got the force. You have the powerful spirit of force, of the force of God in you and at work with you. And interestingly, I found, I don't know if you remember this or not, but some years ago, I pulled out a, a um, theological study done by uh, Ligonier Ministries. And that was what R.C. Sproul was a part of. It's from Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Uh, did a lot of work in um, biblical studies. Well, there is a survey that's done called the State of Theology that they do every two years. Some of you might remember this. It's really just a, an, a, a reaching into the culture of evangelicals or people who say they're believers and followers of Christ to ask them certain questions to find out what the spiritual temperature is of our culture. And so, interestingly, of this spiritual force, when the question was asked in the survey of who do you say the Holy Spirit is, is he personal or is he just some force, the largest percentage of Christians, now get this, of all age groups, men and women said 37%, that was the highest of all the rankings, said, yes, we believe him to be a force, okay? Not a part of the Godhead. So there are people who really believe this. And I think, unfortunately, it's because people just 
are not taught Scripture clearly. Now, as I said in the beginning, I always want to try to bring you some kind of nuggets that you can hold on to and, and go away with. But there comes times where we need to discuss and think through theology. Theology is just what you believe, what the Bible teaches. We need to understand doctrine, what the church needs to know from God. And so some of this we just kind of hold on to lightly, and I would ask you to do that a little bit, but we need to study it because otherwise we come up with wrong conclusions about who our God is. And that can be food for Satan if we're not very, very careful. And so it becomes very, very important. Others would say that the Holy Spirit is just an elusive, kind of a mystical, not really fully comprehensible uh, thing out there. Uh, it, real, but you really can't know what it is. Some people would say that. Mostly they just ignore him because it's just too much to take in. You might be here like that this morning. Still others just absolutely miss him completely. I had a cousin. She's gone on now. Some years ago she was older than I am. Uh, when she was a little girl, my mom told me this story when the little girl, her name was Frankie, not my brother-in-law Frankie, but her name was Frankie. That's what they, she went by. Uh, when she was a little girl, she would often go to my mother's, uh, who was older than her, and she would uh, be in her care. And she looked out the door one day, and she saw Frankie as a little girl with a big wash tub, you know, those metal galvanized tubs uh, that w would be on a lot of farms? Well, that's where they were. And so uh, Frankie's out there as my mom's watching through the door with several little baby kittens, just tiny things. And uh, Frankie's out there, and she grabs one of the little kittens by the scruff of the neck, and she says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and in the hole you go. And that's how she heard what the pastor said about the Holy Spirit. And she would set that cat down, and she'd grab another one, the Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and in the hole you go. And she would dunk them, uh, thinking that's her picture of what the Holy Spirit was. Now, she just had no idea. But some people just, as I'm saying, just simply missed the point and just leave him out altogether, which is absolutely wrong when it comes to an understanding of who God is. And so thankfully that God tells us who the Holy Spirit is and about his role. So let's start there. Go with me now to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm just going to make several points here. We'll talk through them quickly. And then I want to try to hone this down to something that we can... Uh, Remember for our season and who Jesus is today. Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack there or the chair rack, or you can watch behind me or on your phone or whatever you choose to do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the of the waters. Now what I want you to see from this, number one, is the Holy Spirit, is what we need to understand, is as much God as the Father and the Son is. Okay? The Holy Spirit. Let's just start there, and that's why I'm taking you back to Genesis 1. We need to understand this to understand what the Spirit's role is in the birth of Christ. Okay? So we have this written to us from Moses. He was the author of the first five books, and so he's writing about this introduction of God, and that's what he wants us to know. Now, what we don't know, but we have to know if we're studying this thoroughly, is that the Bible is written in Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so in Hebrew, the word that we are seeing here for God, when it says, in the beginning, God, to you and me, that looks singular, but the word is actually plural in its grammatical form in Hebrew. The word is Elohim. 
It's the plural of a singular word called or pronounced something like aloha, not aloha like you're in Hawaii, but eloha, okay, E-L-O-A-H. That's the singular form speaking of a God or a singular God. But that's not what Moses, is, Moses writes here. Moses writes that the, in the beginning, the plural God did something. Okay, so just understand that. Referring to the fact that this God is more than one. Now, don't hear me incorrectly. I'm not saying our God is made up of multiple gods. I'm not saying that. In fact, we know that's not true because of what we learn elsewhere in Scripture. We learn from other places in Scripture that God is one God made up of three persons. You and I call that the Trinity. And that word is referring to the triunity of God, the three in one who work in perfect harmony. Now, you're not going to find that word in the Bible, so if you go to your concordance or the, book, the listing of books in the back of your Bible, you're not going to find a word that says Trinity. It's not there. That word was a word that was used by the early church fathers to describe just what it sounds like. The tri, the three, united persons in the Godhead. So that's where we get the word, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our first example of this triune or trinity is right here in Genesis chapter 1, in the reference to this plural God, of which in verse 2, if we continue to read in verse 2 of Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is a part of that triune God. And beyond that verse in Genesis 1, If we went to the New Testament, we would have another very clear reference to the triune God in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. This is Jesus in context just before he's about to ascend for his final ascension and he's leaving instructions for the disciples and this is what he says. He came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of, here it is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? There's the triune God. Three persons, one God. Now, notice in verse 28 also, Matthew uses this phrase, in the name of. Jesus says, go and baptize them in the name of. I want you to see the word name there. That word name is a singular grammatical reference, meaning name is to represent the oneness of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Go in the name of this one God, made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So there's another clear reference. One God, three persons who make him up. Now next time we're going to see that Jesus doesn't hesitate. In fact, we'll see it in just a second with John 1, but we'll see this more fully next time. Jesus doesn't hesitate to place himself on that same level, even as he's referring to God or as being one along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. In fact, let's just look at that now. Go to John chapter 1. As John is writing about the life of Jesus, listen to how he opens the book. It's going to sound very familiar to you because we just read this in Genesis 1. Genesis, uh, John 1, 1, in the beginning, okay, wow. What did Moses write? Moses wrote, in the beginning, God, right? Well, John now comes along and he says, in the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God. You say, aha, you see that preacher? I told you there were two of them. Yeah, that's right, but hold on. And the word was God. John identifies who Jesus is. He was in the beginning with God, meaning Jesus was eternal. Talk about that next time. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Skip down to verse 14, and this will become much clearer. And this word that was in the beginning with God became flesh, and he dwelt or he lived among us. And John says, we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there again, we have a beautiful reference to a picture of this triune God of whom Jesus is a part, who was in the beginning, as Moses wrote, in the creation, Jesus was there. We now have reference in verse 2 of the Holy Spirit who was there. And so we have this development of the understanding of the triune God or the Trinitarian God. Paul himself would acknowledge the same thing as he concludes his letter to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, finishing all of his instruction, here's what he says. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So... From the beginning, the Godhead has taught that there is one God made up of three persons, each having their own unique role in that Godhead, okay? Now, the second thing we learn is that this God, not only made up of three, is also eternal. He is eternal. If you look back in Genesis 1-1 again, you see that Moses just simply writes, in the beginning, God. In other words, there is no seeking of proving who this God is. In fact, nowhere in the scriptures does God ever seek to prove himself. Nowhere. The Bible just assumes his existence. There is nowhere in the Bible you're going to see any writings that says, here is God and this is how you'll know this is God, other than when Jesus says, if you don't believe what I'm saying, look at my works and I'll prove to you that I am God. You see that. But the Bible never, for those in itself, in its entirety, seeks to say to us, here's God, and this is why you can believe him. That's not the case. God always just assumes, I am God, because that's who he is. And what we learn from this is not only is he God, but that means there are no boundaries around him. When it comes to relationship to him, there is nothing that hinders him. He is in no way locked behind or hidden behind some external thing because he is eternal. And so from that we conclude that he is timeless. He defines what eternity is, which means now that the Holy Spirit also is eternal. In other words, without end. Okay, let's keep going. Here's the third thing. Now, unlike the state of theology said, or the people's response to the survey, we learn that God is not just some force. We learn that he is a very personal God. I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of warm fuzzies. Doesn't it you? To know that our God is a personal God. I mean, there's some people who have just a hunger. One of the things this pandemic has done is caused people who really love to be around people to have to be isolated I have to believe that's Satan's attempt because God built us to need each other, right? Those of you who love to be around people, just love the personal contact with people. Some others, not so much, but that's okay. We still don't want to live on a deserted island by ourselves, right? We still like people. 
Well, the reason we're like this is because our creator God is a personal God. He's very much personal. He wants us to know him. But let's jump in a little deeper here, okay? So I know you've already been through Sunday school, most of you. Some of you haven't, but this is a Sunday morning early, but this is theology class, okay? So we're going to jump into some thoughts here. Arthur Pink, who is a great teacher, theologian, commentator, said this, God created, therefore he is personal. Because a first cause, talking about God, cannot or could not create. In other words, what's created from something else can't be the original. So being the original, God is also very personal, and that's why he created. God created us because he wanted a personal relationship with us. Now, let me say that carefully, because some people think, oh, yeah, see, that's why God, he needed me. No, God didn't need us. God doesn't have a need of anything. God desired to create us to have a personal relationship with us so that you and I would display his glory to the world. That's his main thrust. So don't hear it the other way. What Arthur Pink, though, is saying is that if God were created by some other thing, and people want to believe this, if God were created by some other thing or being, he would not be the creator. You see the definite article there, the? He would not be the creator, which is what Moses makes very clear in Genesis 1. It was God who created, the God. Because anything beyond who God created was already there in the beginning. And so Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created, meaning he must be the first in order to create something. But somebody will say, well, no, that's not true. I like to create things. I create things out of mud. You know, I create things out of art and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's true in a sense that we take material things and we create. But the reality is to create is not the same thing as making something. You and I and creators in this life are not taking something out of nothing and making something. There's already something that exists there. What God is saying to us here is that to create is to call into existing something, existence something from nothing. To make means something already existed. Again, Arthur Pink said it this way. A carpenter can make a chair but from wood, but, another to, but it's another thing to create the wood. Okay? So a carpenter doesn't do that. He may create the chair, but he sure didn't make the wood. And so this is the point here which God is giving to us about him being eternal and the creator of all things. The Bible tells us in that personal relationship with our creator, we are made in his image. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in his image? Look at Genesis 1 again. Genesis 26 and 27, God said, let us, there's the plurality again, make man in our image according to our likeness. What image means that man was made in God's similar attributes, the things that make him up. Does that mean that we look like him? No, we don't look like him. At least I hope we don't look like him, right? I mean, some of you look pretty good this morning, but I don't know if I want God to look like you, right? That's not what he means. God doesn't have necessarily an, uh, eyes and ears and nose and that kind of thing. He's talking about man is made so that he can reason. He has intellect, he has a will. He has emotion. There are feelings there. We can know the difference between what is right and wrong. We can know the difference between good and evil. We have that capability. 
to which the rest of creation doesn't know anything about. Trees don't understand emotion. They don't understand what it means to do something right or wrong. The animal world does not understand what it means to be, in a human sense, moral. Now, I know animals are everybody's favorite creatures on the earth, right? And lots and lots of money are spent on animals because people just identify with the animal world. People are constantly saying, we came from monkeys, we came from apes, right? I heard one guy say one time, if I came from a monkey, I'm going to go to the zoo and feed my relatives, right? I don't want them to be starving. Now, they're very similar in our human characteristics, but you take the animal world and those of you who have pets that can't just let your dog or cat go out and do its business on its own have to walk behind it with little bags and scoopers because they just go and do their business wherever they want to go and do their business and they don't care who's watching. Well, you and I care because we were built with the mind of God. We were made in His image. We care about moral things and intellectual things. So the point simply is God is a personal God to you and me. He wants to be a personal God who made you and me in his image. He wants us to know him. He wants us to have a relationship with him, to learn from him, to grow in our maturity from our infancy sinfully to being spiritual people. And the Holy Spirit is the one who helps us most in our personal relationship. He is the one behind our growth, which is what John said. If you go back to John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said this, when I leave, I will send the helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. I'll send him, not that he needs to be created. Jesus wasn't saying that. He already is. We already defined that. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance everything that I've taught you. So what was Jesus saying? I'm leaving. I have a role to fulfill. I did fulfill my earthly role. I'm going to fulfill my heavenly role. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be for you everything that you need God to be so that you can be the people that you're supposed to be. Now, often we will pray to the Lord Jesus, and we should. We pray to God the Father, and we should. But often the Holy Spirit is left out of our prayers, which he really should not be. He is the powerhouse. He is the one who brings to us the knowledge of the Scriptures. In fact, when you're trying to remember something, it's the Spirit of God who brings it to your mind so that you have an understanding of what you want to either share with somebody or even remember yourself. So he's very, very personal. All right, let's keep going. Fourthly. He is also omnipotent. Now, that's a word that just simply means all-powerful. He is not constrained by anything. Only an all-powerful God could create a heaven and an earth if we went back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. Well, who can do that? Only an omnipotent, all-powerful God. You remember when God said to Abraham, hey, you're going to have a son. And then he went and told Sarah, you remember what her response was? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, she laughed, the text tells us. And the Lord, who was an Old Testament appearance of Christ, as the messenger there said, um, why are you laughing, Sarah? She was a very old in age. She says, because I'm past childbearing years. And you remember what the response was? This is Genesis 18, 14. Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? 
What was Sarah's response? Uh, 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 okay. Jeremiah 32, 17. This is a wonderful little song. And some, we, Debbie and I used to sing this with a home group years ago. Uh, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. We read this. I don't know if you caught this in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verse 37. Luke said this as Gabriel was saying to Mary. Luke recorded it. For nothing will be impossible with God. You remember what Mary's concern was there? We just read it. She said, but how, how can this happen? I, I've never been with a man. I, I, we've never gone through the, 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 the way children come into the world. It doesn't make sense to me. And Gabriel simply says, Mary, 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 listen. Is there anything too poss- impossible with God? Is there, is there anything that God cannot do? And so we learn that God is all-powerful. In fact, just this morning, as I was a little stressed in my humanness about preaching this particular message, again, because of all the reasons that I said, I want you to always have some clarity, and I know that this was going to be a little deep this morning. Uh, there's a man who's a friend of mine from years past that texts me every Sunday morning, and just says, here's what I'm praying for for your church this morning. Do you know that? I've never, I don't think I've ever shared that with you. But his name is Steve, and he's uh, been a friend of ours for a lot of years, went on a mission trip with us. But every single Sunday morning, I get a text from Steve saying what he's praying for us about this morning. Isn't that precious? And I said to him, I said, Brother Steve, pray for me this morning as I want to make this clear to the church family as they have something to hold on to and walk away with. And he says, well, call me. And so I called him and he said, let's just pray about it right now. And so he just started praying to the Holy Spirit. And he said, Holy Spirit, and he started laughing in the middle of his prayer. And he said, Holy Spirit, listen, you're the one who has to do this. You're, yeah, Pastor Bruce, he's nothing. He's dirt. He's filth. He's, no, no, I'm kidding. He didn't, he didn't really sell that. You, Holy Spirit, are the one who has to put the word that you want in the minds of the people listening. Isn't that precious? You see, that's what we're saying here. You hear me talking this morning, but the Spirit of God is doing the power work in your hearts to cause you to change, to remember what he wants you to remember. How can he do that? He's God, and he's all-powerful. And that should make sense to us. Now, we could add two other things to this. We could say he is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. That's simply what it means. As the eternal God, there's nothing that he has to learn. Is that not awesome? You and I spend our lives learning and, and growing in that way, but he created all things. He has nothing to learn. He is all-knowing of everything. We could say then, thirdly, he is omnipresent meaning he's everywhere at the same time. There are no boundaries to him. Do you realize that time is just something for us? God created time for you and me to fit into so that we would see him in a different light as eternal, as all-powerful, as present everywhere. I've said this many times before to our church family, but if you're listening and haven't heard this before, just listen to this. Did you know that at this very moment, God is at the day you were born? At this very moment, God is at the day you die and everywhere in between, simultaneously. Now, that's a mind blower, isn't it? But that's what it means to be omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. He was a created being. He wants us to think that he is the creator, but that's not true. God is the creator. 
Satan can't be everywhere at the same time. He has his little henchmen that go out and do his work. Except for the big job, some of you tougher crowd, he comes and works on you himself because you're so stinking sinful, so wicked, so vile. You want me to stop now? You get the point. I don't have to tell you that. We know our hearts. All right, now fifthly, and finally we'll just say this, he is holy. Talked about that a lot of times over the years. Without defect, our God is perfect, beloved. Absolutely flawless. There is nothing that is a blemish in him. Totally above all things. Sacred, the word would be. Pure. Which is exactly how Matthew describes him in verses 18 and 20. If you go back and look at chapter, 20, chapter 1 again. Blameless. All right, let's go back to Genesis 1-2 again. Let's explain a little bit more of the Spirit of God and we'll bring, some of this to, we'll bring this to a conclusion. Notice when Moses writes in verse 2 of Genesis 1, he says, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God. Now that's caused people some concern over the years. What does he really mean? And this is where people often get the misunderstanding that the Spirit is in addition to God or is he, he's like a part of God in that way. But the word spirit in Hebrew, again, which is the way this would have been written, can refer to wind, it can refer to breath, anything that has that kind of context to it. But in this particular context, the Hebrew reader would understand that that's not what's being talked about here, but this would be a being. Moses is writing about a being, a living creation or a living thing is what they would have understood because only that which is a being has movement in the sense of life. And so that would have been kind of the beginning thoughts here. You can imagine as a parent teaching a child what God is saying here in Bible class. This is what would be the understanding. You have to start at the basics. Beings have substance. Beings have movement. They have acts, inanimate objects, things that are immaterial or just without life don't have that kind of ability. And so to the Hebrew person studying this and listening to this, it would be obvious that the Spirit of God was living something of life with substance. Notice again, he says, the Spirit of God. Notice the capital letter, Spirit. That's referring to something specific, right? A uniqueness. Notice Moses says, was moving. He was moving. That gives evidence of life again. He has mobility. And the mobility he has was because, again, he was living. He's alive. And Moses says this without going through all of this writing. This is what we do as students of Scripture. We have to dissect what the Lord is really saying so we understand well. Moses is saying in this very opening book, folks, listen, this is God. This is God. And don't miss that. It's not just a part of God. The spirit that was moving is God himself in the third person of the Trinity. Notice Moses writes, of God. Again, this is where people get misinformed. Doesn't mean a part of God. That's not what Moses is saying. He is not a part of God. He is not a function of God. But it is to be God. And you and I can understand this. As you look at me right now, you see a very handsome, very God. <laughs> Thank you for that humility, <laughs> that arrow of humility. 
No, you see a balding, fattening, aging, something of whatever appeared to be a person at one time speaking to you. But you understand that this is not me. You understand that what's me is inside the spirit, right? You understand that. We get that by reasoning and, and deduction. We miss that a lot of times because we think the person is the body and we get lost in that. In fact, that's what causes us to be so pained when the person is not with us because we miss that physical presence. But this is the idea that we need to understand here that the Lord is saying. The Spirit of God is to say this was God moving in mobility. This was the person of God in the third person of the Trinity hovering over the waters, the literal, literal translation would be, as God. And it's purposeful on the part of the Holy Spirit, just in the context, because there needed to be something done to what God was creating. At this particular moment, the world was formless, we're told, and void. There was only darkness. There was nothing or no one to make a difference in what was there. And so God, through the Holy Spirit, brought about order. Out of nothing came something. And it was the Holy Spirit's role in creation at that time to bring about order. And he did that. And then from this first chapter, we have the six days of creation. And we have this beautiful development of a world that we know now. In fact, it was during those six days when we see the omnipotent creative power of God building a world where his glory would be made known forever. And you and I see that. In fact, we see that now. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. Verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, what we see out here in the world is an example of God's power, his creative ability, which we're told in Genesis 1 was the work of the Holy Spirit who originated that. Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who has displayed your splendor above the heavens. Psalm 50 verse 6, and the heavens declare his righteousness. Now Christ would be a part of all of this and he'll, we're going to learn that he was ultimately the creator behind the creation, but it was the spirit of God who was the beginning moving force that God used of himself to make it all happen. Unfortunately, let's take a turn here just for a second. The beauty of God's creation and his order wouldn't last because man would fall into sin. Satan, being that chief enemy of God, had fallen from heaven. We know as we go back and we read the Old Testament, we see that Satan was one of God's prince angels. He was the highest of all there was and he rebelled against God and God kicked him out. To roam the earth, we're told, seeking whomever he will devour, which is what he did with Adam and Eve. Just a couple chapters later in Genesis 1, Satan comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve to follow him and to follow their own worldly desires and to rebel against God and causing them to want to try to be God themselves. That's what he said to them, you remember? If you do this, if you take part in this fruit, God knows that you're going to know the difference between good and evil, making them to be like God, which is what sin does. And so because of all of that, God put constraints on man. He cast him out of the garden to live under great burdens. He put him under an eternal punishment because of his rebellion so that he would not have a way to remove himself from all of the pain and the pressure of life. He was going to need help. 
In fact, we read in Genesis 3, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. I said that to the early service and we, all the ladies went, amen. I'm so thankful for that, right? I've never heard a woman say they're thankful for pain in childbirth. I'm being silly there. Yet your desire will be for your husband. And by the way, that doesn't mean that she's going to lust after him or desire him sexually. That's not what it means. It means she's going to seek to rise over him to establish her dominance over him. But yet he will rule over you, and so there's going to be constant friction in the home. There's going to be that battle between the natures of both people to be the dominant one because of the curse of man, because of Satan, as God's creative order was completely turned upside down. To Adam, he said, because you've not listened to the voice, or because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In the toil of your sweat all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. In other words, guys, every, the reason you and I have to work so hard, ladies, the reason you have to work so hard is because of Adam because he didn't follow through with what he was supposed to do and being the leader in his home and, and she usurped that authority out of the uh, intimidation and the provocation of Satan and so it just became a royal mess. In verse 22, the Lord said, Behold, and this is the conversation among the Trinity now, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. And therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, that's an angel, a certain kind of angel, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Listen, what happened there is God said, listen, we've got to remove the man from the garden because if we don't, he'll go back and he'll take part in the tree of life and he'll live forever in his state of sinfulness. I don't understand all the theology of that, but just suffice it to say, God was saying, this is not going to be good. It's not going to be good for man. And so in God's divine mercy, he had another plan. He had another plan, and that is to bring the Savior to come to the earth himself as the second person of the Trinity to rescue us, to offer us forgiveness and hope and understanding that there is a better life, there's an eternal life that we can have through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's partly what we're celebrating this morning. Right now we're just looking at who the Holy Spirit is in all of this, this glorious creation that God has made us to be can be rescued from the penalty of our sin, just like Adam and Eve, so that we can have hope of this life and hope of eternity. Speaking of which, let's fast forward now to a little town called Nazareth. Understanding all of what we've just read and understood and, and heard about, hundreds and hundreds of years have now passed in the context of time since Adam and Eve sinned, and there have been many, many, many people on the earth that have lived with the burden of their sin, continually fulfilling God's condemning mandate to live their lives by sweat and agony and pain and death and 
all the evils that come with a sinful life, knowing internally that they're never going to be righteous enough to be all that God wants them to be and carrying the burden of that forever and forever and ever and watching their children grow up and their grandchildren grow up having the same agony on their souls. It's in all of that mess, beloved. And here's the beauty of God. It's in all of that mess that the Holy Spirit visits a young virgin girl named Mary to give her good news. And listen to this. Luke 1.30 You will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And again, in her humanness, she says in her reply, look at verse 34, how can this be? I don't understand. How, how is this possible? Since I am a virgin, she understood the path of life. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. I want you to see what the Lord says here in its fullest context, this idea of to come upon. People have, throughout the centuries, have come up with some of the most gross meanings behind what God is doing here. There are those who have believed that this was some kind of sexual union between the Spirit of God and the earthly Mary to form some kind of deity child. And that's not what's being said here. The word, to, the phrase to come upon in English, and if we were to take it back to the Greek or the Aramaic, would be to supervene or to arrive. In other words, the Holy Spirit's going to come in the full power of His glory, and He's going to put His power on you, Mary, and the word overshadow you there, as Gabriel would then make it more clear to help her understand, means to surround or encompass you. The Holy Spirit, in a way that only He can, will make His presence known to you and He will place inside your womb the second person of the Trinity as an infant to grow into being a human man, fully man, fully God, and He will save their people from their sins. To which Mary says, so be it done to me. What a beautiful truth this is, that God himself would love us enough in the, midst, in the mix of all of our sinfulness and the debauchery of life by his own free will call upon himself to place the Savior into the body of a young girl who would be our Savior. And not only would the Holy Spirit do that creative act as he did in the beginning of creation of time. But he would also be the sustaining power of Jesus' life while here on earth as a human being. Look at Luke 3, 21. You'll see this just as an example. When all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Do you see how the Holy Spirit descended? The Holy Spirit's involved again in the working of God as God, 
As a third person of the Trinity, he is God working through the second person of the Trinity to please the first person of the Trinity, all triune in their, in their relationship, working to make everything come to pass so that you and I could have hope in this life again. It would go on in scriptures to talk about how Christ is born, but yet the Spirit, as we've already seen, is the forerunner. When Christ is baptized, like right here, the Spirit is bearing witness of him. When Christ is tempted, it's the Spirit who leads him up out of all of that. When Christ ascends, it's the Spirit who takes his place. And on and on and on it goes. The Spirit's work always behind the scenes, elevating and exemplifying Christ for who he is. The most profound thing he does is always pointing to Jesus. <clears throat> always pointing to him. It's like a floodlight. J.I. Packer used this illustration one time talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. He said the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight that somebody puts on their house. The idea behind a floodlight is not for the floodlight itself to be seen, but to display what it, it's shining on. As you look at our little nativity set out here, we put some lights out there, not so people would pass by and say, oh, look at those wonderful little solar lights. No, that people would pass by and say, what's that all about? I'd like to know more about that. It's to put our Lord's birth on display, but the light just gives evidence of that as people drives by, drive by. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is always working to edify and lift up Christ, who is our Savior. It's Christ who was given through the power of the Spirit of God. And so in this season, beloved, we come remembering this Christ who has worked to save us, of which we'll talk about next time. But just suffice it to say that if you're here this morning and you've never really understood who God is and the work of God in your life and the work of God in humanity, understand this, that he is a holy, perfect, personal God who is made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who out of his divine grace and mercy sent his Son, the Lord Jesus, as a man, fully God, became as man, lived a life fully God, suspended some of his holy attributes for a time, but yet was still God, to rescue you and me from the sin that we find ourselves in day after day after day after day. Now, I don't know if you're like me or not, but there are lots of days where I feel the weight of my sin. It seems like the closer I understand God or the closer I get to God and the more I understand God, the more I see my sinfulness. I feel the weight of it. I feel the burden of it. I feel the judgment of it as Satan constantly is accusing me and throwing his attacks and, and trying to mess with my mind and my life and my relationships. I feel that. And I know you do too. That's the burden of sin. It's the anxiousness that our spirits want to be free from, that we don't know how to be free from it. There's nothing that you and I can do in and of ourselves to be free from it. The beauty of this season is that we go back and we remember that there was a time where Gabriel, the messenger of God, an angel came to this young woman named Mary, and he said, Mary, there's good news. There's good news. The Holy Spirit, God will overshadow you and he will put within you the living Christ and he will come and give his life as a ransom for your sin. His life will become the payment for the burden that you cannot carry, that you must pay for, 
and he will set you free if you put your trust in him. He is the savior of the world. And again, we'll see more of that next time. Beloved, this morning, if nothing else, be encouraged by the fact that we have a God who has loved us so much that he desired to create us to be in his image, but to also rescue us from our sin. And he did that through the working of the Holy Spirit. He's a beautiful God and a precious God, a joyful God who wants us to be people of his own. Amen? If you've not done that, let's, let's talk to the Lord right now as we close our time together in prayer. Father, as we settle our hearts from everything we've just heard, it's a lot to take in. And I know those of us who've been doing many years of study still struggle to find the exact right words to describe and to define you because it's really impossible from a human sense. But we know in our hearts, those of us who have trusted you as our Lord and our Savior, we know that you give and bear witness to who you are in our souls. And we affirm you as God. We believe you as God. Lord, we also understand that as we once were in darkness of sin, there are those that are also caught up in the darkness of sin that don't know you. They don't understand the burden that they bear and why it's there. They don't understand the God who has come to relieve them of that burden. And so I pray today, Lord, that if there is someone in the sound of my voice, that they would understand today, maybe for the first time, that there is a God who is an eternal God in the heavens, all-powerful, all-knowing, holy. In his own divine act, hundreds of years ago, placed inside the womb of a young girl himself, as his son to deliver us from the wretchedness of sin. Father, for that soul today, help them open their eyes, Holy Spirit. May they see you for who you are and convict their spirits so that they may reach out to you and give their lives to you, simply surrendering, not necessarily having to do something, but to just let go of their own sin and fall into your merciful arms. Thank you, Father, that you've come to do just this. Thank you that you've come to rescue the lost. That was us. That was us. And that's why we're here this morning worshiping you and celebrating your coming. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do your work as you can only do in the hearts of every person. We pray now in Jesus' name.